Welcome to Famous Lost Words, where we find classic interviews in the archives. Tom puts on his rock and roll miner's helmet and digs out all that stuff, and he listens to it. So you don't have to. And we play the best parts for you. I'm Christopher Ward, along with Tom Jokic. Right. But here's the problem with mining. There's a lot of soot down there, right? <laughs> like, you have to dig through a lot of dirt and mud to find anything of value. Nevertheless, we've got some great stuff this week. But before we get to that, I want to ask you this question. Okay. So <laughs> when you need to be picked up, when you need inspiration, what yeah. song do you put on? There's a lot of music that works, and it is kind of the mood du jour, which determines yeah. my choice. But you know what What always works for me is Beautiful Day by U2. Oh, good song. I just, I remember the first time I heard it and how uplifting it was, and I just, how, how grateful I felt for life and the world. And, and that's, you know, that's a lot for a three and a half minute song to achieve. Yeah, it's a beautiful From the year 2000, that's Beautiful Day by U2, one of Christopher's favorite pick-me-up songs. Any others? Oh, you know what I love? And I don't really know why this is uplifting. Even the Losers by Tom Petty. Why are <laughs> you laughing? Even the Losers get lucky sometimes. Well, I, I know, it's but... It's a great song. Yeah, it, but it's also... It's just the, you know, the heroic struggle of, yeah. you know, the, the young, uncool Tom Petty to be cool. And uh, yeah, it's, it's great. Well... For a couple of music nerds, or as I like to call us, famous lost nerds, um, <laughs> yes. you know, there's a certain part of people who are really into music that probably at some points were considered not the cool kids or whatever. Right. And so a song like even the losers, Get Lucky Sometimes, is great. It speaks to us, right? It saves us. Yeah. From yeah. ourselves. Um, okay, this is a little obscure, but I love the song, I Hope. By the Dixie Chicks, or by oh, the Chicks. Right. Yeah. Don't know that one. Okay. Yeah, check it out. Um, when, when the week is over, and when my fiance Renee has finished work, and she's coming down the stairs at about Friday at about 4.30, I almost always put on, to start the weekend and to lift us both up, one of these two songs. Either Don't Leave Me This Way by Thelma Houston, right. which is Maybe one of the best disco songs ever. And even though I'm not a huge disco fan, there are some songs that I absolutely love, and that's one yeah. of them. And the other one is Ain't No Mountain High Enough by Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell. And yeah. that is a really great feel-good song. That is a, that is a classic. Yeah. I, I could listen to that one any day. Yes. So if I'm coming down the stairs at your place, Tom, I know what to expect. <laughs> so that song, Ain't No Mountain High Enough, was originally just going to be a Tammy single. Oh. And then they decided to get Marvin on the song. So he was not in the studio. But if you listen to the way he interplays with her vocals, right. it sounds exactly like they are face-to-face. -face. And they recorded a number of songs together, and he had a great affection for her, and she died well, way before her time, like mm. even like a dozen years before Marvin himself passed away. But his interplay with her, even though they're recorded at completely different times, is magical. I'm going to listen to it with new ears. All right. Oh, The Motown classic Ain't No Mountain High Enough by Marvin Gaye and the great Tammy Terrell. Tom, we got quite a show this week. First off, 
Taylor Swift from 2014 as she promotes the album 1989, which was a monster record for her. Taylor's very lighthearted and fun in this chat with Roger Ashby and Marilyn Dennis. Oh, she sure is. I was there for that. By the way, speaking of my friend Marilyn, we have highlights of Marilyn's excellent chat with Peter Frampton from 2020 upon the release of his really entertaining autobiography, Do You Feel Like I Do? Peter talks about how fame in the 70s just about took him down and how his buddy David Bowie saved him. By the way, you can find the original interview on the podcast called Marilyn Dennis Does a Podcast. And then we do a complete left turn when we talk about the rise of Aerosmith, Kiss, and Cheap Trick in the 1970s. My conversation is with Doug Broad, the writer of the fascinating new book, They Just Seem a Little Weird. We have a ton (laughs) of fun as we talk about three bands that made it big and one little-known group that did not. Hmm. And on the topic of books, do you have a huge music fan in your life who loves to read? Well, we will give you a complete rundown of books that would make a great gift for that person or yourself. Whether you're a fan of Joni Mitchell, Bruce Springsteen, or Tom Petty, or just some great music fiction, we have some wonderful recommendations for you. Let's get our show started with Taylor Swift. From 2021, that's All Too Well by Taylor Swift, her new version of that song. And of course, Taylor recently set a Billboard record when the 10-minute version of All Too Well went to number one, the longest Billboard number one ever, surpassing American Pie by Don McLean from January of 1972. Christopher? Tom, 1989, her fifth album, cemented her intention to make pure pop music rather than the country that she'd built a career on. The songwriting was her strongest to date, producing three number one records and winning her the Grammy for Album of the Year, her second time around doing that, by the way. Now, she talks about having self-doubt, but you're not going to hear it in this interview, not for me anyway. This is a mature artist, someone with a lot of confidence in her choices and a really clear sense of direction. For me, Taylor Swift is supremely talented, fiercely ambitious, and boy, does she have a devoted fan base who have followed her through all of these various changes. If you don't like it, she'll just shake it off. (laughs) (laughs) Here Taylor talks with Marilyn and Roger about 1989 and much more. New album is called 1989 and on this album it appears as though you've left country behind. Was that a conscious decision and are you are you concerned about what your country fans will think? Well I think having come from the country music community and having such respect and admiration for that community I felt it was best to be very honest about the creative direction I'd gone in and as a songwriter you you have to stay open to being influenced by different things and to changing and to evolving so that you can continue to surprise your fans and challenge yourself so I didn't feel guilty about going in a different creative direction um, and I don't feel guilty now because I was very honest with them I never wanted to you know paint a wall blue and tell them it's green mm-hmm, you know if mm-hmm. I were to have called this album a country album it would have felt very disingenuous and and they would have heard it when it came out and said that's clearly a pop album why wasn't she honest with us mm-hmm. so honestly um it's it's nice to see their reaction has been a positive one just to the simple fact that i was very blunt about it what did these uh, uh, recently 89 people came over to your house yes to listen <laughs> to the entire album yeah i mean with this what's weird about uh kind of the state of my career is that five albums in I feel closer to my fans as a 
just as a group right. than I've ever felt before. Like I feel like I'm involved in their like online little cliques and stuff. We have inside jokes together. I know I could tell you like I know their faces from Instagram. Like if I wow. saw them on the street, I'd be like, "You're you, I saw you on Instagram." Um, for most, for a lot of them, it's yes. very strange um, to have that closeness. And so, one of the things about being so proud of this album is that I wanted to play it for them early. Like, I honestly couldn't contain myself. I wanted them to hear it early so that they would know that yes, there is this change happening, but everything that they've been attached to and that they've related to about my songwriting is still intact. Did they love it? They did. It was so great. Were you relieved? Um, it, you know, honestly, it was. I wasn't worried. Like, I, okay, I've okay. never really been worried about this album because I know that it stands on its own. Right. Um, you know, I think once you get past defining something, people um, kind of need music to be defined for them. Once you get past that, I think all people are really concerned with is whether music is good or not. Right, right. And, and obviously the party went well. It they went stayed so well. They stayed for five hours. I understand. Yeah, it was a really good did, time. Did you run out of cheesies? I'm just wondering. Were I mean, you we ready had a lot. We had people? a lot of food there. <laughs> we were very prepared. Um, okay. Yeah, I, I like baked ahead of time. Did you really? Yeah, I baked cookies. Because I know that when Ed Sheeran is on the road, I know that you made some jam for him. We had an interview <laughs> done, and you made homemade jam for your friend Ed. I do, I do like crafts for my friends, and I bake things for them. I'm sort of just wired that way. Like, it's oh, nice. it's just fun. It's well, cozy. It makes you so... Oh, well, we know that you're very approachable. That's why, you know, he loves you so much. That's great Thanks. when you're on the road. So much there about Taylor Swift. Her break from country music, her deep connection with her fans and other artists. And that album, 1989, like you said, was truly a great achievement. Uh, it won Album of the Year at the 2016 Grammys where it edged out the equally brilliant To Pimp a Butterfly by the great Kendrick Lamar. And that was a bit controversial, that win by Taylor. And in 2020, Taylor released two new albums, Folklore and Evermore, and both are excellent. My son keeps telling me, Dad, have you listened to both of those Taylor albums? And I said... I've, I've heard a few songs. Just listen to them. And I finally did the other day with him in the car. <laughs> and I went, oh, you're right. Like, this is right up there with everything else she's done. And, of course, she's also re-recording her first six albums because of her dispute with her original record company. So she wants to reclaim those songs and ownership of those songs. So she is re-recording those first six albums. Bravo, Taylor. Yeah. I love those new records, too. Mm -hmm. She works with The National, who I'm a huge fan of. Right, and and Bonivere as well, as well as Jack Antonoff from yeah. the from the band Fun, who is an extraordinary musician and producer. Tom, here she talks about the lead single. You know, people always said to me that your early twenties and your late teens are the hardest times for you to figure out your identity, for you to figure out where you're going, and then you know, as you approach thirty, you kind of settle into a comfort of knowing your flaws and being kind of cool with them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's really no criticism that anybody could tell me that I haven't already heard or that I haven't already said to myself in my own head in my times of insecurities. And once you get past all that stuff, you, you kind of, I think what my song Shake It Off, what I wrote it about was how to cope with the fact that people are terrible to, to other people on a daily basis. It's not about just my life as a quote unquote, like, singer, musician, celebrity type person. Mm. It's everybody in every type of walk of life you could possibly be in. Right. And I wanted to write a song for all the people who are dealing with that, but don't want to come at it from a victimized perspective. I wanted the song to be joyful. Cause the players gonna play, 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 
That's Taylor Swift and Shake It Off from 2014. What an absolutely perfect pop hit from a wonderful album. This is a great story about artist and fan loyalty. What's interesting about that video is that we shot it three months before the song came out. So I was a nervous wreck yeah. making sure that the song didn't leak, nobody recorded it. Oh, yeah. I forgot yeah. About that. yeah. And what was so wonderful is that the dancers and the fans involved in making the video all kept the secret of the song and it didn't leak. So That's because they love you, Taylor. Thank you for saying It's that. just one of 13 songs on the new album called 1989. It's out today. Great to have you in here. Thanks very much. Taylor Swift. Thank yes. you. Stranger, come back soon. I will. Yeah, right. you guys are fun. Always great to find a Taylor Swift interview in the archives, and always great when an artist tells you that they had fun with you. That's Taylor Swift, a.k.a. (laughs) T-Swizzle, with Roger Ashby and Marilyn Dennis. I'm T.J. Swizzle, and that's V.J. Fizzle. (laughs) I'm taking sizzle, not fizzle. Uh, And if you're a big Taylor fan, and I know you are, you can hear an early career interview with her in episode 104. Still to come, Peter Frampton talks about the Frampton Comes Alive era and how even he got sick of himself in those days. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokin. I want you show me the way. Show me the way, 1975, Peter Frampton from Frampton Comes Alive. Tom, Peter Frampton is an artist who has seen it all. From band member to superstar to sideman. He'd been in successful bands like The Herd and Humble Pie, but nothing could have prepared him for the success of Frampton Comes Alive, which went to number one on Billboard in 1976 and sold over 8 million copies in the U.S. alone. What followed? Well, how about a visit to the White House courtesy of President Gerald Ford's son or a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame? But then, of course, the inevitable sales decline an unfortunate appearance, let's not say an unfortunate appearance, let's say an appearance in the unfortunate film, Sgt. Pepper, which (laughs) bombed, and most catastrophically of all, a near-fatal car accident in the Bahamas in 1978. A call from an old friend, David Bowie, brought Frampton back as a musician, playing on the 1987 Never Let Me Down album and the subsequent Glass Spider tour. On the occasion of the release of his autobiography, Do You Feel Like I Do, Frampton chats with Marilyn Dennis, who does her typically wonderful interview in these two extended clips. Yeah, and these clips, by the way, are from Marilyn's podcast, so please check that out. In the first, we hear about success and satin pants. People ask me, you know, you'd been successful with The Herd in Europe, you'd been successful with with Humble Pie in Europe and America, uh, and it was just gaining momentum. well, you must have been ready for, for what happened with the Comes Alive album. And I said, oh, yes, I'll be ready for this, as it was creeping up the charts, and then it sped up the charts, and then it went to number one, and it stayed there all summer. And uh, I realized I wasn't ready for it. <laughs> um, the onslaught of publicity and um, interviews and uh it, it was it was all a bit and nothing like today's paparazzi, but back then it was still huge, and um, so it was a little hard to take. I have to say, um, mm-hmm. it took some getting used to, which I did. I sort of thought I was the bee's knees for about five minutes, and then and then realized through my my dear parents 
brought me down to ground. <laughs> and um, yeah, and I'm lucky to I'm lucky to have them. Was lucky to have them, obviously, and um, realized that I'm you know I'm this guy that uh, just does something that you put others on a pedestal for because I've just yeah. written these songs and and put this album out that's everybody seems to want at this moment so it's um it's a heady experience to say the least and i read where you were very excited about hearing your songs on the radio but then you felt like wait a minute it's too much now did you <laughs> actually feel that way um i know it's strange to say but um it was almost yeah. embarrassing because i was uh you know i would i was living in new york at the time upstate new york and and uh i would turn on um you know new which was our great fm station and uh yeah there i was um but then i would i would change the channel as i like okay and there's me again and there and i go to plj and there i am again and then i go somewhere and there was and then i turn the radio off and and put a cassette in or something just I, I don't know. It's um, I, I've never done. I've never done anything for money or outright. Or this will be successful. It's always been about the music and making it better. You know, for me. Yeah. And um, yeah. So this was all a bit. Oh, really? Um, <laughs> and uh, I thank everybody yeah. for for their attention. Uh, but but it's uh, it's all a bit too much. I just want to thank you for the soundtrack of of that time. And any person that I've talked to, Peter Frampton, baby boomers are not saying that I was interviewing you. They were like, wow, he is phenomenal. So just know that that was a great gift to all of us. And that still well, remains one of the top live albums of all time. How many albums did you sell back in the day? It, it was eight million um, in the states and seventeen and a half million worldwide now. So, and it's still selling. So, it just blows my mind constantly, you know. And it's almost like it's that other guy. It's not me anymore, you know. Oh, right. Don't have the hair. Don't have the hair. See, don't have the hair. No, that's true. <laughs> but you're still adorable. The hair was good. Well, the satin you. pants were good. I loved everything. It was a look. Oh. I love that look. I love that look. <laughs> Here, Frampton talks about the call from David Bowie. There was a bit of a break um, mm -hmm. after, you know, Frampton Comes Alive. And then your friend gave you a call and said, hey, do you want to go on tour with me? That friend is David Bowie on the Glass Spider Tour. I do remember when that happened. So do you want to expand mm -hmm. on that a little bit? Good old David Bowie. What a good soul. Um, yes. Well, his, um, his art teacher was my dad. And in fact, George Underwood, if I do that, George Underwood was Dave's best friend for, for life. And he's a dear, dear friend of mine still. But Dave, Dave, George and I, we were the uh, three amigos. And um, I made a beeline for Dave as soon as I um, went to the school because I'd seen him play in a band already and um, playing sax and singing. Mm -hmm. And so my dad let us bring guitars to school and uh, hid them in his office. And then at lunchtime, we got them out and sat on the stairs, <laughs> big stone stairs and had this wonderful echo. And they would teach me um, Buddy Holly songs and Eddie Cochran songs, and I'd show them some shadows. Yeah. And um, so it started then, but Dave was uh, my friend for his entire life. And 
and he would always pop up and we'd go out for dinner or he'd invite me to something and, and we'd catch up. And, um, so, uh, it wasn't, it, it was a wonderful call from Dave. Um, uh, and I wasn't surprised to hear from him, but I was just surprised he wanted right. me to record with him and then go on the, on the road. So, uh, he had seen what had happened to me, the musician, um, post comes alive, which had really sort of turned me the publicity and the media uh, attention, uh, with me not paying attention to detail and always having my shirt off in photos and stuff, um, turned me into a, I helped turn myself into a teeny bop idol. And teeny bop idol's mm. career is 18 months, and that's about what I got. Right. And then things went off, off course. So Dave saw all this and he knew me as the musician, the guitar player, and always, and knew my frustration. So I believe what Dave did was give me the biggest gift any other musician could have given me, which was mm -hmm. take me in on the tour and reintroduce me as the guitar player. And thank you, David. Always, always, always. I always thank you. Peter Frampton in conversation with Marilyn Dennis, and that's from her podcast. Marilyn Dennis does a podcast. And I would highly recommend you check out the entire episode. The interview is 35 minutes long, and it's extraordinary. We just wanted to play a little bit of it um, just so we, we could uh, give Marilyn a shout-out and her podcast as well. He also talks about the mistake that he made in following up Frampton Comes Alive too quickly with the album I'm in you, not the best choice. And he addresses his current health issues. And those health issues made him decide to do a farewell tour right before the pandemic hit. So thanks to Marilyn for letting us run those clips. And by the way, we have two previous Peter Frampton interviews, one from the Frampton Comes Alive era, just before he became a superstar, and one from around the time of the Bowie tour in the late 80s. Those are in episodes 104 and 401. He made a great contribution to Bowie's band. I actually introduced them when they did a press event at the Diamond Club in Toronto on the release of the what? Uh, of that album. Yeah, yeah. That's so, great. Yeah, he, he was he was a wonderful contributor to the band. Still to come, need to get a great book for the music lover in your life? Have we got some suggestions for you. Welcome back to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic. If you have someone in your life who's a big music fan, we want to talk about great gifts for them, whether it be for their birthday, for Christmas, for Hanukkah, for any kind of celebration. We've got a list of some of our favorite books to share with you. All right, the first one up is Gold Dust Woman, the biography of Stevie Nicks by Stephen Davis, okay? So with every book that I do, I'm going to tell you a quick story from the book, okay? It'll help kind of give you an idea of what the book's about. Cool. So Stevie was good friends with Tom Petty and his wife Jane, and when Stevie asked Jane when her and Tom met, Jane replies with a southern accent, we met at the edge of 17. So Stevie <laughs> thinks she's saying the edge of 17. Jane is saying at the age of 17, Stevie goes, no, no, the edge of 17 is much better and decided it would make an excellent song title. And ladies and gentlemen, that's how songwriters do their work. It's true. 
by overhearing other people's conversations and simply mining them for for things that we then refer to as original ideas. <laughs> I love that story. That's great. All right. So my second book is called Bruce. It's a biography of Bruce Springsteen by Peter Ames Carlin. And mm-hmm. it's very good. And in my opinion, it's actually even better than Bruce's autobiography, which is very good. Okay. So here's a story from it. Mid-70s, Bruce is trying to rent a one-bedroom apartment for him and his girlfriend. The landlord does not like the look of Bruce. He looks shabby. (laughs) You know, he looks unkempt. So the guy, the landlord, asks him for proof of income. Bruce said he had a recording contract with Columbia Records. The guy says, sure you do. So (laughs) Bruce plays the ultimate card. He whips out the recent edition of Newsweek magazine with Uh. his face on the cover and yep, he got the apartment. That is that is an excellent story. I love that. It's a great book. Now, your picks are quite <laughs> different from mine in that they're more literary. So why don't you tell us about this first one? Well, what I've found is that writing about music, bands, artists, and all of their their chaos and living out their dreams is kind of catnip to novelists. Many have tried to tell these stories, <laughs> and there have been some successes. Somewhere it's just they're a little bit off. They don't really get how musicians talk to one another, uh, whatever it may be. But I've got a few favorites that I'd like to tell you about, including the relatively obscure Espadare Street. This is written by the late Scottish novelist Ian Banks. He was known primarily as a sci-fi writer. And um, this is a dark tale of post-fame told from the point of view of the protagonist, a guy named Dan Weir, who used to be in a very famous band called Frozen Gold. Here, Dan describes songwriting. Here's an example. I'd love to put everything into one song, to sing a song of birds and dogs and mermaids, hammer-headed friends and bad news from far away. A song of supermarket trolleys and seaplanes, falling leaves and power stations, fatal connections and live performances. Wow. And on okay. it goes. That's just a little little bit of an example. But by the way, that, that book, I as soon as I finished that book, I sat down and wrote a song that Alana recorded called Irish Rain. And yes, I know the book is set in Scotland. That's called Creative License, okay? <laughs> <laughs> At least Very that's good. what I call it. And it's yeah. called Espadare Street by Ian Banks. That's excellent. Yep. Okay, what's your next one? Well, I this is a book I really love, but it's it's kind of a guilty pleasure. It's called Juliet Naked. Oh, yes. Nick Hornby, who revealed his love of music as a subject in, in High Fidelity, right? Yeah. Writes about the great lost album in this story by the of course, enigmatic and reclusive Tucker Crow. It's also a love story about a couple who are kind of stagnating in a seaside town in England. Duncan, the male in the couple, is an obsessed super fan of Taylor Crow, and his partner Annie accepts this as, quote, part of the package like a disability. It's funny, touching, and there's a film starring Ethan Hawke as Tucker. Well, I don't know the film, but I do know this book. I don't read a lot of fiction, but I really do like Nick Hornby. I loved High Fidelity, and I really do like uh, Juliet Naked by Nick Hornby. Great choice. Great choice. Wow, your choices are much different from mine. (laughs) As as always, right? (laughs) Well, that's what makes it work, hopefully. Um, So Mm. there's a bit of sort of literary... I call it rock and roll tourism going on in Utopia Avenue, a book by David Mitchell. 
He's a, a British writer, one of my very, very favorite novelists working today. He wrote Cloud Atlas. It was made into a picture, and oh, it's yeah. a, a beautiful book. Beautiful mm-hmm. book. In mm-hmm. Utopia Avenue, he sets the story in the swinging 60s and tells the story of the band that the title refers to. They reach stardom, and then tragedy takes them down. Now, Mitchell has long made his love of music apparent. His second novel is called Dream Number no. 9, the title of a John Lennon song. Mitchell is an intense and masterful writer. I highly recommend this book. Utopia Avenue by David Mitchell. Okay, that sounds fascinating. All right, well, keep going, Christopher. Oh, you sent me something connected to this next book. Okay, go ahead. A rock and roll saga by Salman Rushdie called The Ground Beneath Her Feet. It's a complicated story of two Indian singer-songwriters and their best friend, a photographer. There's a long-standing love triangle and a story that travels from Bombay to swinging London to New York City. It's also a modern retelling of the myth of Orpheus. (laughs) (laughs) I know. It's also brilliant. So, for what it's worth, the lyrics from the book's title were made into a song by Bono and The Edge for a film called The Million Dollar Hotel, and it is a beautiful and haunting work. So let's hear a little bit of that, okay? From the year 2000, that's U2 and Daniel Lanois, lyrics by Salman Rushdie, The Ground Beneath Her Feet. That is a wonderful song, which I only heard for the first time a few minutes ago. Thanks for sending it my way, buddy. (laughs) Always glad to. All right, well, let's go back to the mainstream, can we? (laughs) Not that Salman Rushdie is not mainstream, but you know what I mean. Yes. Okay, The Lyrics by Paul McCartney. This is a major piece of work from a guy who's been let's face it, extremely busy through the years. What he did, though, is he wisely conscripted poet Paul Muldoon to have conversations with about the songs that McCartney wrote. It leads to this very anecdotal style of writing. And McCartney, as he has done so well in his public-facing life, welcomes us into his world with seeming candor and humor. Can I give you just a couple quick examples? of songs that we know and love? Sure. Well, he talks about having to memorize speeches from Shakespeare at the Liverpool High School for Boys and recalls this from Hamlet. Quote, Oh, I could tell you, but let it be. Horatio, I am dead. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) McCartney says, I suspect those lines had subconsciously planted themselves in my memory. He then goes on to tell the now familiar story of dreaming about his mother, whose name was Mary, after a a bad drug experience. And there are handwritten notes from a school book and photos of his mother, all kinds of detailed stuff accompanying the lyrics. This book is amazing. Okay, well, let me finish up with a few of my own here. Uh, One of them is Me by Elton John, obviously his autobiography. Great read, fun, easy to get through. One of the weird stories from it was... Elton was going to tour with Tina Turner in the late 90s, but during rehearsals, Tina criticized Elton's costumes and his hair and his musical arrangements, but when (laughs) Tina criticized Elton's piano playing, that was it. He stormed off and canceled the tour. They never toured together, but they did bury the hatchet and become friends again. Wow. I've never heard that story before. That's fantastic. (laughs) So one of my favorite artists of all time also is the subject of one of my favorite books of all time. It's called Reckless Daughter, A Portrait of Joni Mitchell. 
Okay. So this story, Christopher, I have told you before, right. but I wanted, I just wanted to retell it. Okay. So Joni is starting to get more successful early in her career. She realizes she needs a manager. She interviews one very successful manager who says he would love to manage Joni if she gave him 50% of her publishing. She said, <laughs> right. Sure. As long as you give me 50% of your management company. And he said, are you crazy? And she said, are you? I <laughs> love that. That's brilliant. Perfect. Worthy of retelling. I'm going to quickly rhyme off a couple more books for you. Uh, so Respect the Life of Aretha Franklin by David Ritz. Uh, the latest movie with Jennifer Hudson is based partly on this book. So here's a great story. Aretha, terribly afraid to fly, but she tried to conquer it several times. One time she did fly was a quick jaunt up to Toronto for a concert. And Christopher, I think it's the one that you and I both saw in 1996, around that right. time. Yeah. Okay. So she's expecting Toronto to be freezing. So she packs her biggest fur coat. That coat was so huge that Aretha had to buy its own seat in first class. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And finally, one of my favorites, a book I was looking at just today, Is This Live? The Wild Early Years of Much Music by you, Christopher Ward. Hmm. And there are so many great stories, including the segment about the worst interviews right. ever. And one of them was Mariah Carey that Master T told. Apparently, just before they went on the air, Mariah needed a makeup artist to, quote, dust her cleavage before she went on the air <laughs> because apparently it was too shiny right there. Yeah. <laughs> and you don't want that. So... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for the kind words on my, on my book. Oh, no, it's so exciting. And I, I went through it today again and just had a look. And there's so many great stories and we don't have enough time to go through them right now. But it's a great book. Is This Live? The Wild Early Years of Much Music, the nation's music station by Christopher Ward. There you go. Some great books to recommend from a couple of music nerds who just love to read. And we thought we'd share some of our favorites with you. Still to come. Tom is going to be in his glory as he talks to the author of a book about the rise of Aerosmith, Cheap Trick, and Kiss. Can he keep himself under control? I'm so excited. Find out for yourself next on Famous Lost Words. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Joking. From 1978, that's Cheap Trick and Surrender. What a fun song. And that line, they just seem a little weird, is the title of a great new book. And a few days ago, I spoke to the author of the book, Doug Broad. So the book is called They Just Seem a Little Weird, How Kiss, Cheap Trick, Aerosmith, and Stars Remade Rock and Roll. Now, you cover the intertwined story of four bands, three of whom were very big and won that despite like this Herculean effort, could not make that leap. And we'll talk about that band in a few minutes. But among the story arcs in this book is the rivalry between Kiss and Aerosmith. Okay, so I want to go back. I want to talk about a gig in Maryland in 1974. Kiss opens for Aerosmith. They blow the crowd away. Joe Perry is pissed. He is incensed because... Aerosmith only received this kind of tepid reaction after Kiss. And 
His quote is, we're busting our asses up here trying to write great songs and play them right. And Joe and the rest of the band see Kiss as this clownish outfit. And that rivalry has lasted for decades, hasn't it? It has. And it got so bad early on. You know, both bands were starting, were pretty much starting out at that time when they played together in around 1974. They did two gigs together. Even the the, the road crews, who were very possessive of their, <laughs> of their benefactors, um, they got into it. They got into yeah. the mix and, you know, knives were drawn and there were punch-ups. So there was a rivalry early on. And then later on, in the early 2000s, when Kiss and Aerosmith actually toured together on a lengthy tour, yeah. those rivalries and those animosities percolated. And then even later than that, um, when Steven Tyler uh, went on the radio with Joe Perry to talk about um, Kiss, um, he had very unkind words to say about him, about them, um, mostly calling them a, a comic book band. And, uh, Paul Stanley, when he heard that, he did some radio show and he he shot back at Aerosmith. So yeah, so these guys have all have always been um, kind of. I mean, I, I don't really like the term, but they've been frenemies. They've been right. friends for years, but also they've had issues with each other. And and one of the last in in one of the last scenes of the book, I, I um, talk about a Joe Perry solo show to promote his album in L.A. And in the audience uh, was Gene Simmons. So there, there's still friendship there. Yeah. But there's still this kind of, I guess, professional uh, competitiveness. You know, one of the things that struck me is that Aerosmith were very proud, especially at the beginning, when they were kind of really hitting it out of the park with albums like Toys in the Attic and Rocks. And they were very proud at the craft of creating these great songs. The thing is, is even though Kiss had two kind of messed up guys in the band, when they were on stage, they were a unit. They looked good, depending on your taste. They played well, again, depending on your taste, but they were together. And Aerosmith noticed that even early on. They go, like, these guys are messed up, but on stage, they're a cohesive unit. What do you think about that? Well, yeah, I mean, that's a that's a great point. And I think it goes down to this. I mean, Kiss had two driving forces in that band who were Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley. Um, they were straight. I mean, Paul Stanley admits that he drank a little wine and maybe smoked a little pot, but, but Gene Simmons was totally sober. Um, and then you had two other guys in the band, Ace Frehley and Peter Chris, who were not. <laughs> um, but you had the driving forces who were who were driving forces. Yeah. And then you have Aerosmith, who the, the two major driving forces of the band were the ones who were the most messed up. So Absolutely. you had this divergent um, leadership in both bands. I mean, true, Joe Perry and Steven Tyler were the focus of that band, but they were also probably the weakest link in a way. Yeah, absolutely. So Cheap Trick is another band that you cover extensively in the book, and they have a strong connection with Kiss and Aerosmith. But Cheap Trick saw themselves as kind of the anti-Kiss, no bombs, no stage show. And 
yet I know that Rick Nielsen, for one, got to kind of appreciate their sheer showbiz factor. Now, I saw them on the Love Gun Tour. So Cheap Trick comes out opening for Kiss. We are revved for Kiss. It's probably one of the first big concerts that I'd been to. Cheap Trick comes out. I don't know these guys. Geeky Rick Nielsen. Bunny Carlos looks like a 50s businessman who'd had a very, very rough day. (laughs) So we didn't know what to make of them. And honestly, I don't think we were very charitable to the band. Well, first of all, I I would dispute the saying that they're the anti-Kiss. I mean, I really, growing up as a music fan, I mean, Kiss was my first band that I loved. And I loved the cartoonish quality, the fantastical Mm -hmm. quality, the makeup the stage show. When I first heard and saw Cheap Trick and saw what they looked like, I kind of put them in that same kind of little box of a theatrical band that that had personalities in the band. I mean, you had yeah. these two sort of gorgeous guys in in Tom and and, and Robin. Robin, and then you yeah. had Rick and Bunny, who were the two goofballs, but they had a real look to them. So, and, and something cartoonish about them. And I kind of I kind of saw them in the same light as Kisses, which is why I, one of the reasons why, I, you know, I, I put them together in the book, but that's more of a, sufi- a superficial reason. Yes. But what Cheap Trick had, I thought, was that that they were kind of uncategorizable. They weren't quite punk. They weren't quite hard rock. They weren't quite heavy metal. They weren't new wave. They were just this amalgam of like 60s British invasion, who... Beatlesy, but they gave their own their their own spin to it. This kind of heart, this hardworking, the Midwestern uh, work ethic, humping it out for four sets a night, seven nights a week, yep. and they just were able that they put in the miles and they they established this sound that was so unlike anything else that was around at the time. Mm-hmm. Why do you think they weren't? A bigger band. Uh, I, I think it, it all it all came down to at at their peak uh, during Dream Police. Um, Tom Peterson pretty much checked out of the band, and by the next album, he played he played on it, but he wasn't around to promote it. And um, pretty much after Tom left, I think the band just had a crisis of confidence. Um, their records were not as well received. They frankly weren't as good, I think, as the earlier records. Um, and I think that was really detrimental. And it wasn't until he returned in the late 80s that they actually scored a number one hit with The Flame, a song mm-hmm. they, didn't, they didn't even write and a song yeah. that was a huge compromise for them. Yeah. yeah so, so it wasn't until Tom came back when they had their first number one hit um, it, it didn't even do much to move the needle because the next record was a stiff. So right. it, it came down to them losing an essential part of the group. Yeah. One of the themes that you capture really well in the book was how Kiss fans felt about the band. And I can totally relate. You, you had a guy, I, I can't remember what page it's on, but he kind of talks about the band being his and my first introduction to music was my older brother being into the Beatles and I heard, you know, Let It Be and a few other Beatles albums and, you know, Tommy James and the Shondells. And I love that music and I still do. And I, I probably love the Beatles more, um, more than any other band ever. But when I heard Shout It Out Loud on the radio, this is even before I saw them, I went, 
that, I don't know what that is, but I, I want whatever that is. It blew me away. And then I see them and I go, okay, well, that's kind of cool. So why do you think that KISS fans almost had to fight a battle to just love a band that they loved? Well, I, I think who you're referring to might have been Scott Ian from Anthrax, who I think said so, that he yes. had old, older siblings who were into like the Allman Brothers, but KISS was the band that he discovered and he loved. Yeah. And, you know, I think that something that attracts KISS fans, not all KISS fans, but something that attracts them is the look, the image, the makeup, the costumes, the cartoonishness. But there's also the songs, which are like simple, anthemic, you know, in your face, bombastic. And that's a quality that's very, that, that, that grabs you. It's easy to understand and to, to, to digest if you're into it. Mm -hmm. However, you know, a lot of other fans of rock music at the time in the, in the 70s were snobbish. And, yes. you know, they, they had no sense of humor. Right. And, and critics. They couldn't, <laughs> yeah, and critics. And they couldn't get with the whole Kiss vibe. Yes. And as a fan, at least back then, when Kiss were not respected, you know, you had a fight for your band. You had a, you had to keep defending your love for Kiss. And mm -hmm. people who liked Kiss back then, there were there were not a lot of people who were on the fence. I mean, you either love Kiss and got it, or you just thought they were crap. That's right. And what happened, I think, is, as often happens, in hindsight, you realize that they influenced so many bands. Like even Garth Brooks said he was a big Kiss fan. And of course, Tom Morello was a huge Kiss fan, and he, he was the one who inducted them into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Correct. Now, the fact that that happened is a miracle in itself, because there was no way that Jan Wenner and the group wanted Kiss in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But then their influence becomes more readily apparent as the years go on, and they become more respected. I think it's the cartoonishness is also kind of funny, because... Because A, it's a bit funny just by the fact that these guys dress up in makeup and, you know, do their hair up and all that stuff and wear the costumes. But it's also interesting because when they came back in 95, 96, they looked exactly as they did when Ace left in the early 80s. Like they looked exactly the same. And, and Paul, when I asked Paul about that, he said, as long as physically we didn't change too much, we were the exact same band that people remembered in very, very few bands can do that. And it is funny that the, once the makeup came off, they still had a modicum of success, but I checked out. And then when Kiss Unplugged came out with the reunion and then the, the full on reunion, I was all the way back in, even, even making the mistakes of buying some of the new albums. So, <laughs> so anyway, it is interesting because it was my band and I took a lot of, I took a lot of crap because everybody said Kiss sucks. Well, you, you make a really good point. The fact that, that, they are now semi-respected. I think that has a lot to do with one of the themes of my book. And, and one of the themes is that Kiss and Cheap Trick and Aerosmith and to a lesser extent stars were very influential on both um, hair metal and grunge, which obviously came after. Um, and artists from both of those genres look to Kiss as inspiration. Yeah. I mean, Kim Thale from Soundgarden, um, the guys from Stone Temple Pilots, um, I think the guys Pearl from Mudhoney, yeah. they loved Kiss. 
and mm-hmm. Kiss made them want to become musicians. So if you didn't have Kiss, you might not have had these bands that right. came after. The same yeah. with the, the hair metal guys. They all loved Kiss. They all yeah. loved Aerosmith. Yeah. Um, and they had a profound relationship to these earlier bands. I want to jump to Cheap Trick now, who had a really bad experience touring with Aerosmith in 2004 because Steven Tyler kept losing his voice and they had to cancel so many shows that Cheap Trick ended up losing money. So when they were asked to open for Aerosmith again two years later, they devised what I think is a genius plan. Can you tell us what that was? Yes, they actually took out an insurance policy with Lloyd's of London to cover them should more Aerosmith shows get canceled. Right. Took out this policy and it actually was beneficial because there were a few shows canceled and they were able to make some money back. So that was a problem when Steven Tyler had some throat issues um, and the band couldn't perform. And when you're and when you're um, kind of piggybacking on them as an opening act, um, it's pretty crucial to have some kind of payment coming toward you if those shows don't happen. Because because it's it's not cheap going out on the road, even no. if, you know, especially for an opening act who's not making headline or money. They've got they've got bills to pay. They got people to people to pay and uh, they've got gas to pay for and buses to rent. The genius part to me was the fact that they not only took out the insurance policy, but they had to pay a very large deductible. And so I think they had to pay almost like five shows worth of deductible, but they hedged their bets so that they would like more than five shows or something like that would have to be canceled before they made the money. And that's what happened. And so they actually made enough money to break even and pay everybody. And it was just a brilliant move on their part. So I love that. Um, The saddest point in the book happens in 2006. Butch Walker, he's now, you know, massively successful producer and songwriter. He talks about meeting Ace Frehley when Ace is completely hammered. And it was a case of don't ever meet your heroes. Can you tell us any more about that moment? Well, it's funny because, you know, Butch Walker, who is a great interview, by the way, and yeah. really thoughtful guy. He loved Kiss. Kiss was his first band yeah. Yeah. that he that he fell in love with. He was he was a kid from small town like rural Georgia. Yes. Um, and they were a huge escape for him. Um, and, you know, this is this happened at a VH1 Rock Honors Awards in oh. um, in Las Vegas. And yeah, so he he um, he met Ace, one of his heroes. Ace was drunk and just out of it, and and making these offensive remarks, and kind of you know, it really took the uh, it took the steam out of uh, out of Butch Walker's kind yeah, of appreciation. But yeah, so at the end of the at the end of the gig, you know, he he was sitting on the side of the stage, and and Ace came over and put his arm around him, and and he's like looked at him and said, "Can you believe it's come to this? It's like you know, wow. here he is, Ace oh. Freely, watching the guy who replaced him playing him, sitting on the side of the stage, and yeah, yeah it's pretty. It was a very kind of poignant moment, and it's one of the 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 more kind of emotional in the book when you when you look Absolutely. at it. Absolutely. Do you think that Ace and Peter Chris will ever join Paul and Gene on stage again? That's a really good question, and that's been up for debate for debate a lot lately. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'd like to think so. I mean, they've been talking about this gig, like for their last show, doing a show at Madison Square Garden in New York, where they, you know, their hometown. Yeah. Um, and maybe having both those guys come out. I mean, I think they need to do something spectacular like that. And I think they they might just be able to do it. Yeah, maybe they just put uh, Peter on a stool and have him sing Beth or Hard Luck Woman, you know? Like maybe so he doesn't have to drum, right? Because that's, he was a very good drummer in his day and Ace was a very good guitarist in, in his day as well. Okay, I have a little bit of a theory about why you wrote this book, Doug. I know you're a fan of Kiss, Cheap Trick and Aerosmith, but I think that you're a really big fan of stars and you just wanted to write a book so that you could write about stars. <laughs> uh, not quite, but I'll tell you, I actually didn't become a fan of stars until the early 2000s when their, oh. when their records were released on CD. That's kind of when I discovered them. I and mean, I knew they existed. I'd seen their logo. I'd seen their ads in magazines yeah. in the 70s, but I never paid attention. I never heard them, even though they had a top 40 hit with a song called Cherry Baby. I'd never right. heard it on the radio. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what, you know... My motivation for telling this story is it, it comes down to Gene Simmons' 1978 solo album, which I talk about at the start of the book. Yeah. Um, and on this record, members of Cheap Trick, Aerosmith, and Stars all play guitar. You have Joe right. Perry, Rick Nielsen, and Richie Rano from Stars. And I thought that would be a great jumping off point to tell a story about 70s hard rock that no one's told before. And yes. I knew that all these bands interconnected. I mean, stars not only were managed by Bill O'Coin, who managed Kiss, they were produced by Jack Douglas, who produced Aerosmith. They toured extensively with Aerosmith. Yeah. Um, Cheap Trick toured with Kiss. Uh, Cheap Trick were also produced by Jack Douglas, who produced stars and right. who produced... Aerosmith. So there were all of these kind of intertwining elements with all four of these bands that I thought it would make an interesting story. And it was an interesting one for me to research because I just love getting all these facts and sort of making this flow chart and seeing how different people connect. Yes. So that was pretty much the motivation of the book. But, you know, the stars... Um, portion I thought would 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 lend this book a little bit of a little bit more poignancy because they were a band from that same time that had all of these kinds of opportunities but never made it and I wanted mm-hmm. to explore why there were there was this level of band during that time bands like Angel and Legs Diamond and all of these bands in the 70s that had Star Castle that had four or five albums on major labels but never attained never. Those heights. Head East was another one who who were a big regional success, but never, never blew up nationally. So, yeah. So I I wanted to have stars act as kind of like an avatar to sort of tell that story of the, the failed hard rock band from the seventies. You know, I think it makes the book better because you see the, the high flying adventures and trust me, those other three bands, as you well know, were slugging it out. They were working extremely hard. And then you have another band that has the talent 
and they're slugging it out too. And the fact that they don't, they don't make it is really kind of tragic, you know. For anyone not knowing who they are, they started out as Looking Glass, one of the great one-hit wonders ever with Brandy, You're a Fine Girl, one of my favorite songs. And they tr- decide to change their sound because they started mocking their own hit by wearing like a gorilla mask. The lead singer, uh, Michael Lee Smith, starts wearing a gorilla mask during the playing of the song because he's so sick of playing it. So they... They become this hard rock band with these massive hooks and really is interesting the way you weave their story and ultimately it's one of failure with the other three bands. And uh, I'm so glad you did that because at least I made, you know, I found another new favorite song and it is Cherry Baby. That is a massive song and boy, can that guy sing. Michael Lee Smith, he's just one of those guys like Steve Perry or Mickey Thomas who has that piercing, clear rock voice that you just want to hear even though mickey thomas sang on the worst song in recorded history we built the city but that's another story for another day <laughs> it's a great book it's called they just seem a little weird how kiss cheat trick aerosmith and stars remade rock and roll the author is doug broad thank you so much doug i just would like to point out even if you're just a fan of one of these bands especially kiss cheap trick and aerosmith it will draw you into the story of the other three bands It's such a fun read. Thanks for chatting with us. I hope you do really well with the book. So thanks very much, Doug, for joining us. Thanks for having me. This was a pleasure. Great stuff, Tom. That's a wrap for this week's episode of Famous Lost Words. Our show was co-written by myself, Christopher Ward, and my co-host, Tom Jokic. Executive producer, Sarah Cummings. We're heard in more than 100 countries around the world and on radio stations across Canada. Check us out on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts. 